Elizabeth stood up for, it's reported about at least five minutes after the opera was over in the Royal Box clapping. So she she clearly was okay with it and had no problem with the story that was being depicted. But everyone was mad. They were big mad. Uh, because, you know, again, this went against the national mood of what everyone was trying so desperately to convey was that this is this is the beginning of a new a new era for England. And this opera was like, uh, maybe not. So one thing that pretty much all musicologists do these days is what's called reception history. We look at what critics and audiences have thought of a piece of music to better understand what it means. It's widely accepted in our field that yes, music does have intrinsic value unto itself. You know, what's in the score, what we hear in the recording. But that in order to fully grasp the significance of a work and its role in society, we have to look at what's been said about it and how that has changed over time. Now, for an Americanist like me, I'm Will Robin, by the way, and this is my podcast, Sound Expertise, where I talk to fellow music scholars about their research and why it matters. Reception history can only reveal so much. The United States is a big, decentralized country that doesn't really care much about contemporary composition. And so, you know, when we learn about what critics said about Philip Glass's Einstein on the Beach or John Adams' Nixon in China or another important modern opera... It's interesting, but it it doesn't really tell us all that much about, you know, like, American identity in the 20th century. That is not the case across the Atlantic, though, and it's definitely not the case in England after World War II, when the operas of Benjamin Britten assumed a huge cultural significance. When Britten the country wanted to celebrate itself, they turned to Britten the composer, commissioning operas for major national festivals, and even the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, who, as you just heard, knew Benjamin Britten and his music pretty well. The stakes for Britten's operas when they were first performed were pretty high, and that means that when we look at how Britten's operas were received by audiences, we can learn a lot about national identity in a crucial period for England and its people. That is the research focus of my guest today, Amani Danielle Mosley, who is an assistant professor at the University of Florida's School of Music. These moments in British musical history, in which weird operas by a queer modernist composer were performed for the actual Queen of England, feel a little bit like deleted scenes from The Crown. Let's learn more about them now from Professor Mosley. So you clearly have a very kind of long and important relationship with Britain, the country, and Britain, as in Benjamin Britain, the composer, um, which are, you know, historically and also in your own research kind of deeply intertwined things. Um, Can you talk a little bit about your history with that? Like, did you become a Anglophile first or like a Benjamin Britain file first, if those are accurate ways to describe your your kind of interest in these topics? Yeah, they totally are. That's really an interesting question because I do think about that every now and then. Um, When I was a teenager, I should have saw the signs um, that I was a, that I was a baby Anglophile. 
um, because I was I was I was very much drawn to all things sort of uh, English and and British, um, but that didn't really cement for me until I was in grad school. So, <clears throat> excuse me, my introduction to Britain came first, which happened the last year of undergrad, and um, I was writing a comparative analysis paper uh, about the Ligeti Horn Trio and the Brahms Horn Trio. And I had pulled out a recording of horn chamber music literature and it had the serenade for tenor horn and strings on it. And Britton was a composer that was never really on my radar. I knew who he was, but because there's not a lot of, almost no music really written for bassoon, it's not something that I would have been working on, you know, in high school or in undergrad. So I was aware right. of him, but I, I didn't know much about his music. And I was like, hmm, let me check out this piece, Serenade for Tenorhorn and Strings. And I, I remember this moment so vividly. I was sitting in the library and I felt like all time and space stopped. I'd never heard music before. I'd never heard... English before and I was gobsmacked and that turned into me wanting to get my hands on anything I possibly could so I was living in New York City at the time and I went to the Juilliard bookstore to buy something and they had a small Britain biography on sale and I well I was like well I have to have this and I just snapped it up and came home and read it and devoured it and I was like, this is the guy, this is the composer, <laughs> this is who I want to spend the rest of my scholarly life working on. So that happened. That was 2006. And were you already kind of heading in a musicology direction at that point? I was. So I was finishing a performance degree and I was applying to, I was thinking about applying to uh, grad school for performance, but I... I had come into college not really knowing what musicology was and thinking that there was a thing that I wanted to do specifically. So I had done a minor in communications. I was taking all of these writing classes and journalism classes. And I thought, oh, maybe the thing that I want to do is to go into music journalism. And then one of my professors, Ann Stone, was like, you need to be a musicologist. And I was like, oh, is that? the thing that I've been thinking of all this time. And she's like, yeah, right, it is. Right. So that shifted everything. And that was how I sort of was on, put on the track to musicology. And, and I decided that I wanted to uh, do performance and musicology for grad school. So I was already going in that direction. So when I found Britain, uh, that was when I decided, yeah, this is what I'm going to do as a musicologist. You know, like, Britain is not, you know, Beethoven in that there's, you know, multiple shelves of books about him, but he's also, you know, not a total obscurity. Like right. there is a, like a subfield, right, of like Benjamin Britten studies. How did you kind of basically get, both get to know that literature and then realize that there were gaps that you wanted to like fill in? Um, I think that I was very lucky to be placed at the right time in Britain scholarship. So the end of my time at conservatory was getting closer to the time of the Britain centenary. 
And so a lot of stuff was starting to happen and, and, and galvanize. And so when I was in grad school um, doing my terminal master's and reading and writing and, and, and working on my master's thesis, which was on Britain's rape of Lucretia, I was devouring everything, but realizing that you know, there was a lot that needed to be discussed and that the same handful of people were kind of coming up all over the place. So whether it was editions of things or, or articles, I kept seeing the same names. And in 2010, I went to my first Britain conference where I met all of the people who have become a part of my life as a scholar and are sort of the, the, the biggest names I would say right now in, in Britain scholarship. And it was in that moment that I, that I realized, and I think we all kind of realized in that moment that there was a new sort of burgeoning community that was on the cusp of adding to Britain scholarship and really filling in those gaps. And, and that's when I kind of learned about a sort of timeline in Britain historiography, where a lot of things were written while Britain was alive. And they were intensely hagiographical. And if Britain had his eye on them, but he wasn't particularly concerned, but he, he knew that people were writing these things about him. And then Britain died. And there were still those people who had been writing about him while he was alive and they were very much trying to like safeguard and protect Britain's legacy. Yeah. But as, but as we got further away from Britain's death, there was the desire to write about things that I think a lot of scholars felt they didn't have the opportunity to write about while Britain was, was alive. So that's when you see stuff like Philip Brett and others who are really looking at Britain's sexuality and how that plays into his works. And so that kind of pervaded the period of the 80s and 90s. And then there's kind of a fallow period where people are writing about Britain, but it's not really intense. And it isn't until the, two, the, the mid 2000s, sort of 2005, on where my advisor, Phil Rupresh, wrote his book, uh, Britain's Musical Language, that this sort of uh, wheel of Britain scholarship started to return. And, and people who were writing about Britain were saying, okay, well, we've done the biographical stuff and we've done right. the stuff that's focused on sexuality. Now is the time to write all of the other stuff that maybe, people would have written about other composers at another period in time um, that hasn't just happened for Britain yet. And that's where we are now. Uh, there's this freedom to write about all of these far more intricate things because all of the big stuff is sort of out of the way. Right. And what, how did you kind of come to your own version of that like what you know you're you're working on these four operas in your dissertation and kind of the idea of of reception history white like looking at what people said about them critics audiences and how they kind of were in dialogue with these different moments in british post-war war history right yeah well i had always been an opera girl um and because opera as a genre and as something that interacts so interestingly with other non-musical social things really fascinates me. But the more that I, so again, the British history stuff 
had always been there and kind of lodged in my in my mind. And so I was really aware of all of the things that happened in British history in the 20th century, specifically after the post-war. Just like all all of the crown, basically. All of all of the crown. I can't I cannot tell you. There was a period of time where I would I would sit down with Phil and say, Well, you know, I'm watching the crown for dissertation research. And he's like, Yeah, that tracks. That's fine. <laughs> it's like, I mean, I've now watched, I watched half of the first season and then I got kind of trailed off and now I'm in the fourth season. And I've also been reading uh, the, have you read the Wolf Hall trilogy? Oh, yes. Yeah. Which I'm, I'm reading the, I'm on the third one now and they're like totally amazing. So I feel like between those two things and your dissertation, I feel like I have in the last like three weeks learned more about British history than I knew in my entire previous life. But Yes. <laughs> That's that's uh, really all I can ask. For. Anyway, sorry. So so this, but the period, this period of your focus also obviously is is an important one in in British history. Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, as anyone who's watched The Crown will know, a lot of stuff was going on, and it it didn't make sense to me that these things were not in conversation with each other, especially because of the relationship that Britain had with Queen Elizabeth, uh, and which is very well known and and documented, you know, beyond writing an opera for her coronation. So what was that uh, relationship? uh, So she was a fan of his music and, and had been a fan for a very long time. And she came to the opening of uh, the Maltings at Snape to kind of like do the sort of Royal opening kind of thing that monarchs, I guess, still did at that time. And if you go to the Red House, they have, a, Britain and Piers kept a, like a signature book, their front, in their sort of front entryway. And they have, at the Red House now, they keep it open to where uh, Her Majesty and Prince Philip came by. And oh, wow. their signature, of course, is only on one page. There are no other signatures on that page. And uh, she wanted, Britain to be uh, her master of the Queen's music. He said no. Oh, wow. Yeah, he didn't want that position. Uh, he also, she also offered to give to to give him a, uh, a CBE. Uh, so she offered to knight him and he didn't want that either. What he ended up taking was a peerage. So he has an OM, uh, which means he's a, he's a lord. Um, so uh, uh, the lord of Albra. <laughs> um, and of course, Piers was knighted. And when Britain died, she sent a letter to Piers. Right. I remember reading this. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it means more to us because this is a sort of, you know, tacit understanding of their, of Britain and Piers' relationship, which is huge considering the, the state of affairs around homosexuality in Britain at that time. And so just the fact that she, you know, sent a note of condolences, uh, you know, condolence to peers when Britain died is a, is a huge thing. So, you know, obviously uh, they're, they're only going to be as close as, as someone could be in that kind of relationship. But uh, the Earl of Harwood, who is the queen's cousin was very close friends with Britain. So on some level, Britain moved in these very, kind of like royal circles and that was a huge part of uh how we understand his the sort of social aspects of his life 
And so that, I mean, that's the biography, but that also connects directly to, to what we were just talking about, which is this kind of larger question of reception and social history. So like, what is, what is the, the way in which the kind of broad way in which Britain's operas are being received that relates to this larger kind of post-war climate? Yeah. So he, you know, when you write an opera like Peter Grimes and it becomes as successful as it was immediately, and this is you know, 1945 and 1946, he was vaulted into the public sphere uh, pretty rapidly, even though, of course, he had been writing for, for quite some time before that and was known as a, as a good composer, but he'd also left the country. And so coming back to England and writing Peter Grimes and it captivating the public the way that it did uh, made him this sort of national figure that I think he wasn't really prepared for. And it came at a time when Britain, the country, or the, 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 as Britain is not the country, but uh, when, when, when what is it, the a United com- a Commonwealth or something, I don't know. I don't, these are all words I'm learning about via Thomas Cromwell. <laughs> it's complicated. You know, uh, the United Kingdom is made up yeah, of four yeah, countries. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, you know what? But, well, we're going to end up offending some Irish somehow or something. <laughs> I, please, please don't. I love you, Ireland. Don't, don't come after me. Um, so uh, it was at a time when, when England was, really trying to understand itself as a country after World War II. They felt decimated and there was a desire to show the world that they still had uh, prominence and power. But at the same time, the British Empire was falling apart. So to have someone like Britain become so immediately popular, not just in the UK, but around the world, it was like, hey, here is this person who represents the best of what we offer as a nation. And there was a sort of latching on to that because that's always that had always been a, a deep desire, especially at the end of the 19th and early 20th century, uh, to show to the world that that England was a place filled with, in this case, composers of merit. So so Britain was was connected to these feelings of insecurity and promise that came uh, at the end of World War II and the breaking apart of the British Empire. And so his works were even more scrutinized by the public. Right, right. Uh, because it's like, this is our composer, right? This is this is the guy that we're putting here on this on this threshold. And his works by virtue represents who we are as a nation. And so if the if the British public doesn't quite understand what he's doing in his works, then there's trepidation there. Um, but what ended up happening that I found in my research was that they didn't understand a lot of his music <laughs> post-war, but other people did. Yeah. <laughs> Which made him kind of a, a, a stranger in his own land. Which was why he left London and 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 move to and move to Suffolk. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's like always so striking about reading reception history in Europe versus 
the you know i'm an americanist where it's like well our reception history is interesting but it's like so low stakes and like you know when you have (laughs) small country big composer it's like oh yes that's actually like the reception is like something that everyone knew about and that like the queen is probably reading those papers and like no yeah it's just so it's so different um Mm -hmm. so maybe let's move a little bit kind of chronologically through through the different operas and how they kind of relate to to these questions of post-war identity um sure so billy budd is tied in with this huge kind of festival of of britain project can you talk a little bit about what the festival was and its significance and how britain gets kind of uh tied in as as a composer yeah so in 1945 there was an election so winston churchill had been prime minister and the tories had been the so the conservatives had been in charge of the government and they were kicked out unanimously uh, in favor of labor. And the Labor Party decided in this moment to engage in all of these kind of big social schemes. That's how we got the NHS. All of that stuff is happening in these years. And there's a big artistic project that was in line with all of this called the Festival of Britain. And it, it was modeled loosely off of the World's Fairs. But the idea was that this festival would showcase all of the best aspects of British art. And so that included architecture, design, fine art, music, dance, everything. And again, it was part of this project of of showing to the world that Britain was still important and still had something to offer after uh, after World War II, even though they were mired in austerity. And so Britain was asked to write an opera for it, and that ended up being Billy Budd. And what's interesting about that is because Billy Budd was written for the Festival of Britain, it's it was understood at that moment as this history opera uh, because it takes place during the Napoleonic Wars and I mean which is not not true but there was more of a focus on that setting and the story that the very sort of face value story that Britain was telling in the opera than any kind of like deep introspective look into into what was happening but as a as a result it was a huge success uh people really loved it they thought it was too long it was uh <laughs> britain then revised it it was initially four acts and he cut it down to two um but it was deeply tied with again the feeling behind this project uh because it was historical in nature and showcasing one of the things that england is the is the most proud of which is its navy Right. Um, So, again, uh, the fact that it was a story about, uh, again, on a very surface level, uh, the British fighting the French, uh, a wonderful, lovely pastime between the two (laughs) between the two nations. Um, And of course, us knowing history, knowing that they were successful later on, um, all of that, I think, fed into why the opera was so popular, in addition to people just actually like the, the, the sound of it. Uh, and so once you remove Billy Budd from the Festival of Britain, it's only then that people start to think a little bit more intensely about what's going on in the in the story and see it as this incredibly deep psychological drama. 
Right. And, you know, one of the kind of themes that you're, you're engaging with is this idea of how masculinity changes in, in different periods in post-war Britain. And so like, you know, Billy Budd famously has an all-male cast. How does that relate to kind of post-war ideas of masculinity? How are those changing? And, and, you know, I mean, obviously this is an opera that has like, I don't even know if you'd call them like queer undercurrents. I think they're like yeah. over, overcurrents or over something, current. but, but yeah. yeah, talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, so martial masculinity is a huge part in how um, how England, Britain understood itself as this imperial martial power. And a lot of that is, is built into the Navy. And so, again, in this moment, showing this ship with an all-male cast uh, is feeding into these larger feelings of military power um, and might that is reinforced by masculinity. And it's something that people don't want to let go of and don't let go of. And so again, because of that connection, um, the masculinity that's portrayed here is seen differently than how it's seen later but nothing in the opera has changed, right? Uh, it, it isn't. It isn't anything that Britain has done. It becomes the public's relationship to masculinity uh, or types of masculinities that changes that allows people to see the opera in a different way. So once we finally reach the end of empire and people are thinking about. British masculinity differently, one that's separate from uh, separate from 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 the military. There is this new emerging type of masculinity that comes into play in the '60s. That it's not that it's more queer because that's definitely not the case. It's just it resides in a different place. Um, it's it's young, it's social, it's still incredibly heterosexual, uh, but it's not connected to this really intense um, sort of feeling of of empire. And and so, you know, people are able to 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 think about what these stories and seeing a whole bunch of men singing together looks like differently but but initially yeah it's just a reinforcement of you know british power british sea power uh and that that's what makes a that's what makes a strong english right and so critics are kind of gradually beginning to talk about the kind of queer aspects of the story and the opera especially homosexuality is decriminalized in the late 60s is that right yeah it's uh it's decriminalized in 1957 there's the Wolfenden report that happens 10 years uh, prior in 1957, where they're like, maybe we should think about this idea of homosexuality in relation to, to the law. So yeah, you see an immediate change uh, in the, in the language of the critics uh, post 1966, which is when the BBC did their film version of, uh, of Billy Budd. So in the 50s, no one is using, not even like 
coded language to talk about the relationships between Billy Veer and Claggart. Every now and then you'd have a critic who would say something that might intimate to Britain's own homosexuality, but it's very, it's very thinly veiled, very flimsy, but it's not about the work itself. And then all of a sudden in the late sixties, you, you see writers just saying, this is a gay opera. <laughs> you oh, know, wow. they're using, they're using the language homosexual. They're talking about erotic desire. Like it's there in plain in plain English. And it's almost as if the combination of the, the, the TV version, which uh, critics say, you know, it allowed for a, a type of new interiority because of televisual aspects, you know, like we can linger on people in a way that you can't when you're watching something on stage. Oh, interesting. You can really sort of, um, uh, because of camera shots and things like that, you can, you can really think about what's happening in a character's mind because it's not just like all these fancy men marching around. It becomes more like about the intimacy of their relationship. Exactly. Exactly. So the combination of that and this loosening of language that comes, you know, the following year with the decriminalization of homosexuality, people, it just, it just broke it wide open. And so uh, immediately you see people, um, not just reevaluating the opera, but but writing about it very differently. So you know, I remember being in the Royal Opera House archives and looking at looking at their reviews of of when they did Bud in the late '60s, and immediately you see people saying, "Yeah, this is an opera about three men and their queer, erotic, complicated relationship with each other." Like it, it you know. No one is mincing words at this point. And I think it's fascinating how sort of on a dime that language right, right. changed. That's interesting. Yeah. So, you know, queerness kind of operates as this overarching framework throughout the kind of different operas you look at in your dissertation. Um, and, you know, that's also very much, you know, some of the most kind of important work in queer musicology is on Britain's music, which is by the late um, musicologist Philip Brett, who you mentioned earlier. How did you kind of develop this this framework to understand these operas as kind of queering aspects of opera? How does, how do you see it relating to Brett's work on, on Britain? That was a long process. Uh, a lot of discussion with queer theorists who are, who are not musicologists, um, who funnily enough, everyone that I worked with was a fan of opera and had these sort of kind of peripheral thoughts about about Britain. And it was really just, you know, trying to bring these two worlds together in a way that didn't seem, you know, sort of like hackneyed or ham-fisted. Uh, because I remember getting questions about this early on in my scholarship where people were asking me if this was going to be more of a sort of hermeneutical exercise to which my answer was always no i feel and i still feel this way that anyone could have written operas that address these themes and address opera as a queering agent it didn't have to be britain and it didn't necessarily have to be someone who was gay 
Now, the fact that that is what happened, I think, you know, opens up a whole new sort of can of worms for us. But I am not making the sort of connection that because Britain is gay and because these themes appear, ipso facto. Right, it's kind of biographical. Right. Um, And I I pushed on, I pushed back against that uh, a lot, especially while I was writing while I was writing the dissertation. And that was the hardest thing for people to understand, which I get because it was hard for me to develop as a, as a methodology. So really trying to look at source material and the way stories were being told and thinking about other ways that people use these kinds of methodologies and other works and trying to replicate that process in these operas was was really important so you know a lot of a lot of stuff that's in my dissertation is not by musicologists uh it's by it's by social historians and cultural historians and 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 queer theorists uh, because they're doing this kind of work in other places. And actually, they were talking about Britain a lot um, in these kinds of uh, moments of, of, I don't know, social change um, in the UK at this time. So really trying to, to, to point out the fact that, you know, I think if anybody had set Billy Budd, which already comes with these issues in its original source text, that they could have had the ability to set the work in such a way that it it queers these heteronormative narratives about opera, right? Um, because there are no there are no women in the in the original story. Why would there be, right? So you could make a choice as a composer. You could say, well, I feel that because operas for the last 400 years have always been the kind of domain of heterosexual, heteronormative relationships, that even though there are no women in the story, I'm going to put women in the story. Like you could make that decision, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, just happened. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, but if you choose not to make that decision, then you're, actively working against the model that is presented to you as an opera composer, right? So anybody could do that. Uh, it's just the case that nobody nobody had. Um, and I say that nobody had, I don't know why no one else has, um, but it's not just because, you know, Britain is a, was a prominent gay composer. He definitely wasn't the only one, you know? Right, right. And it's like also, you know, if we kind of have this, I guess, like very loosely, like death of the author model mm-hmm. to look at um, these works, like, you know, the reception of any of these operas tells us more about what people in Britain are thinking about these ideas than what Benjamin Britten is is thinking, right? Yeah. I mean, it seems, it seems like there's this thing that happens with all of these operas, whether they're successful or they're failures, is like... The success or failure has very little to do with the weird thing that Britain himself is doing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's like everyone everyone sees what they want to see, and then Benjamin Britten do is ultimately doing something a lot weirder that people kind of figure out later. Yes, almost, right. Um, yes. Um, that I mean, that's maybe a good way to to talk about Gloriana too, which is like you know one of these great, you know, 
scholars who get to write about big kind of catastrophes in opera history, like that's always kind of the juiciest stuff to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about Gloriana and like an opera being written for the coronation of, of Queen Elizabeth II and kind of the stakes of that? Yeah. Uh, oh, my my beloved Gloriana. I, I love this <laughs> opera so deeply and I'm so glad that I was able to carve out space for it. So Gloriana was written for the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II in 1953. There was a huge push to have a lot of music be written for all of these sort of coronation day festivities. So uh, so Gloriana was supposed to be kind of like the big end to several days of lots of music being written and performed by other well-known uh, composers, um, Arnold, Vaughn Williams, uh, you know, anyone who was was well known as a British composer was involved in this project um, of, of of writing new music for the for the Queen. So it wasn't just that, you know, Britain's kind of over here writing this thing on his own. There's lots of new music that's being written. Um, there's 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 ballets, there's there's lots of stuff happening. And uh, Winston Churchill is back in power. Uh, for his last go at uh, the prime ministership. And there is this feeling of this thing that's called the new Elizabethan age, which is this return to the kind of glory that Britain envisioned, that England envisioned uh, of the 1600s, the late late 15 and early 1600s this period where the first Queen Elizabeth turns England into uh, this nation with power and might that then eventually goes on to become the United Kingdom and and, and Great Britain, British Empire. So again, that feeling that I mentioned from, from the end of 1945, where people are like, we're still important. This was a, this was a fundamental mission of Churchill's to be like, we are important. Uh, that the British Empire still lives, et cetera, et cetera. So in that respect, uh, the music that was being written was either doing one of two things. It was either this kind of like incredibly laudatory, celebratory music, or it was specifically uh, reminiscent of music from uh, the Elizabethan period. So like Henry Purcell, John Dowling. Yeah, exactly. So either either two of those things were happening. So when people found out that Britain was writing Gloriana and that it was a story about Elizabeth I, everyone thought that this was going to be, like the the UK didn't have a great sort of big historical opera. People wanted a Boris Goudinoff. Yeah, or like a Donizetti. Not by not by an Italian guy, exactly. You know, a queen queen opera. Yeah. yeah, they wanted a queen opera that was that was not that was not by some random Italian. Uh, people were really they were really looking for that. They wanted they wanted a a, a Nabucco, a Boris Gudinov. They wanted something like that uh, because they felt that that was the only thing that would be worthy of this brand new, young, vibrant monarch. And that, of course, is not what Britain did. Because why would he do that? Uh, <laughs> instead, he writes about the story of Elizabeth and Essex. Um, this is a, towards the end of Elizabeth's life. Her uh, relationship with the Earl of Essex, his foiled plot to to put down rebellion in Ireland. She's 
old and crone-like and you know people wanted to see elizabeth in her power you know elizabeth of the spanish armada elizabeth of the tilbury speech that elizabeth think think kate blanchett so they wanted they wanted that and instead they got the end of of the elizabeth the first series from hbo uh with helen mirren so <laughs> so this was this was a huge deal that that this was the story that was being told, but we know that Elizabeth II loved it. She loved it. Oh, interesting. She so Britain and Piers and the Earl of Harewood uh, performed. Uh, so th- there was a there was a meeting with Britain, Piers, the Earl of Harewood, um, Elizabeth II, and and Prince Philip. Uh, I believe uh, at Windsor, where Britain ran through the opera on the piano. Oh, well. uh, and it had to be, you know, like, so, so she would be okay with it. Uh, she and Philip had the libretto. They knew the story. Um, there's, there's anecdotal remarks about, you know, Philip bringing the, the libretto to the opera. And like, that this was like the most studious thing they'd ever seen him do <laughs> at that point in time. Um, so they were, they were familiar with it. And they clearly didn't have a problem with it. Uh, Elizabeth stood up for, it's reported about at least five minutes after the opera was over in the Royal Box clapping. So she she clearly was okay with it and had no problem with the story that was being depicted, but everyone was mad. They were big mad uh, because, you know, again, this went against the national mood of what everyone was trying so desperately to convey was that this is this is the beginning of a new a new era for England, and right. this opera was like uh, maybe not. You know, these are works that remain somewhat in the canon in in Britain, um, and you know, Britain's music has certainly not faded into obscurity. Mm-hmm. Like, do, what do you think about the operas that? How do you see the operas that you've you've worked on relating to? Britain in 2020 kind of post-Brexit identity today. Do you think they have things to tell us now? I do, especially Gloriana. Because what Brexit has shown me in the last four years is that the identity crisis of the post-war era was never solved. It was sublimated because of Thatcherism and you know a deepening of austerity and just a desire to get out of these really bleak um, uh, economic times that pervaded the the end of the twentieth century, but it was always there underneath the surface, and Brexit pulled all of that out from wherever it was and put it back in front of us in a big way. And I, I talk a little bit about Brexit in my dissertation because I couldn't I couldn't help myself. Um, but it's only it's only grown more apparent to me in the last maybe year or so that these these issues around empire and masculinity and and relevance and a kind of 
uh, xenophobia that comes with all of this and an insularity uh, is now the is now the language um, mainly of the British government, but also of a lot of people in in Britain. And there have been a lot of discussions around music framed by this sort of identity crisis. I mean, just a couple of months ago with the last night of the proms, there was a whole hullabaloo about the performance of Rule Britannia that happens every year at the last night of the proms. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a conversation about music and it was solely a conversation about what, what Rule Britannia means uh, or what it means now in the age of Brexit. So, a work like Gloriana specifically, I mean, all of Britain's works, but especially a work like Gloriana is a reminder of how fragile that kind of identity ego is and how it may never, it may never be resolved. That if there is music um, or or, or art or something else that is created that pushes up against this idea of, you know, the longest running empire in history, uh, a nation that has, you know, thousands of years of history and, and that being equated to it being the, the sort of greatest, um, strongest, most enduring history in, in the world, that they're, they're always going to be they're always going to be dust ups when when something comes along that pushes against that, especially if the person who is creating the thing is someone who is seen as a person of national prominence. Uh, so I think I think there's going to be a lot more discussion about Britain. I know there will be from coming from me specifically. Yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> but I think there's going to be a lot more discussion about Britain's music in the post Brexit age. Um, and I think there's going to be music by other composers too. That's also going to be talked a lot in the post-Brexit age. Vaughn Williams and Olgar and Holt specifically, how they figure into these concepts of, of of national identity and 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 ego. So I think Britain is is rife for for these for these times. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about your work on Britain is because um, I feel like on your very vocal use of social media, like you're, you've kind of gained, a, I think, a, a strong and rightful reputation as an advocate for, you know, diversifying or throwing out the canon to a certain degree yeah. and, and, and institutions programming more work by, by underrepresented composers. And like, I mean, yes, Britain was gay, but he was also a, a white guy who's somewhat canonic. Like, how do you kind of square that for yourself? No, like working on a figure who, is yeah yeah absolutely i mean that is a question that i that i think and and pose to myself often uh i don't see britain as a particularly minoritized composer especially because there's been so much work peddled around his own sexuality um that it's not so much that it's not important anymore it's incredibly important because i think he is one of the most well-known visible out composers um, from a period when that was not necessarily viable. And so I think that's important and that story needs to be told. That being said, um, you know, 
there's lots of other work that can be done that could be programmed that's not his. Like since 2013, Britain's work has been programmed across the board far more than I think it had since his death, for which I'm very happy. And I don't I don't fear a sort of dearth of Britain programming. <laughs> you know, people are gonna people are gonna do his work. I mean, I just just this week, you know, did a three concert pre-concert talk for a Britain Chamber Music Festival. So like people are invested in his in his work and love his work. And so it's always gonna be it's always gonna be performed to some degree. And and so, you know, I advocate for small things in relationship to him. Like mainly I, I have a gripe with the Metropolitan Opera, as I think all people who know me know. Um, and, you know, I think it is, I question why of Britain's 13 operas, they've only done four. And of those four, uh, one of them has only been done once. And the other three have been done no more than three times. And, you know, I'm like, well, you know, as far as repertory goes, I feel like that's a hole that should be filled, should be filled. Also, at the same time, they should be programming works that are newer, um, that are by actual minoritized composers. Um, they should be programming new works whenever they have the 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 option to do so. Um, they should be programming works by by women composers that maybe are not new, that didn't get, you know, um, that didn't get large scale performances. And that is more important to me. Um, and that's more important to me kind of across the board. Um, that's just my one little, my one little bugaboo in relation to, to getting Britain's work programmed because I feel like, you know, the Met has never done Gloriana. And I would love for it to have that kind of performance because I think it deserves it. You know, and if they did that, then I could then I could rest a little easier. <laughs> um, and maybe I wouldn't maybe I wouldn't be, you know, rapping on their door talking about Britain all the time. Um, but that is very different than my feeling about how underperformed new works are. Well, thank you so much. This was a really uh, great conversation. Thank I appreciate you. you taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, thank you so much for 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 having me. I've I've loved talking with you about Britain, and uh, you know, I, <laughs> I hope people are are interested. <laughs> I think they will be. Thank you. This is awesome. I'm very grateful to Amani Danielle Mosley, who is assistant professor at the University of Florida's School of Music for that great interview. I'm sure many of our listeners already know Professor Mosley from her lively social media presence, but if not, you should definitely follow her on Twitter at Amani Mosley. On our website, soundexpertise.org, we've got links to Professor Mosley's scholarship. As always, if you like the sound of our show, check out the music of our producer, D. Edward Davis, on SoundCloud at Warm Silence. And if you want to know more about what I'm up to, follow me on Twitter at Seated Ovation. Many thanks to Andrew Delantonio for transcribing all our episodes to make them more accessible. Our guest next week is the anthropologist Nick Seaver. We'll be talking about streaming services and the cultural meaning of the algorithms that govern our musical lives. See you then.